Who among you would consider themselves to be a procrastinator? See, <laughs> it's funny because I, I see tech people raising their hands in the back, even though there's no one sitting in the seats. Um, and I'm pretty sure, put those up again, almost every hand in this building went up, which instills a little bit of a lack of confidence. If, in case you were wondering, your entire worship team here this morning is made up of procrastinators. And so somehow this, this service is still happening and all things are well. Um, and that bodes poorly for the example of the sermons this week. But who among you? See, right now, if there's people in your own home that are glaring at you, that means you're it. You might say, there's no procrastinators in my house. Well, it's probably you. See, we all, to some degree, like to procrastinate. Some of us are worse at it than others, but in, in one sense or another, there's things in our lives that we put off. My procrastination habits are, are a little odd. That I, I'm not a huge procrastinator. I am a planner. I do keep pretty good track of my time. But I have a really hard time working through the distractions of things. Maybe this is you. Maybe you, know, you sit down to do a project, and, and you're starting, and, and you're really excited, and you have some ideas. But as you get going, you realize, yeah, this desk is a mess. I can't work like this. I gotta write a sermon, but I mean, I, there's this stack of stuff. Yeah, it'd only take me like an hour to go through the stuff on that stack, and then it'd be gone, and then I could focus on my sermon so much better. And so you work through that stack, and then you go, you know, I gotta pay bills this week. Well, you know what? It's, it's only Monday. I, I, can, I can work on that sermon Tuesday. I gotta pay these bills and get this done. And oh, I have to help so and so do this thing. And so, so the next thing you know is days go by. See, I, I don't procrastinate on purpose. I would love to sit down and do something, but I. I have all these little things that go through my mind that I like to do first. And a lot of times, the task at hand ends up being pushed further out and further out and further out. See, we all love to, in some way, procrastinate. We all have our things. And sometimes they're not big deals, right? Maybe you procrastinate cleaning your house, and so the worst scenario is you have a bit of a messy house. That's okay. It's not the end of the world, unless you're a neat freak like me. Um, but maybe you procrastinate in some of the heavier things. See, how many of you have procrastinated when it comes to seeking some kind of a medical issue? You know you're supposed to have gone to the doctor for months and months about this thing that's bothering you, but you just put it off. Right? Those are some more significant ways. See, every one of us has these things. I heard somebody talk about a few weeks ago, was telling me that procrastination is actually good for us. That they work best when they procrastinate. I, I, I had a friend who's he's a pastor, and he says, if I write sermons on Saturday night, they are the best sermons that I've ever written. And so sometimes, I don't even start until around lunchtime on Saturday. And I'm just not convinced that that works the way it did. In 1997, Case Western Reserve University in our own backyard did a study on students and procrastination. And they gave different sets of students different types of deadlines. Some students had very specific deadlines for the, the list of projects that they had to complete, while another subset was just given the projects and you know, no deadline and say, you just have to have all of it done by this very end. And so they, they kind of had different ways that they had to schedule out their time and be responsible for how much they procrastinated or didn't. And one of the things they found is that early on in the study, those who procrastinated seemed to be far more emotionally healthy they were happier, they, they were more rested, they had less stress in their lives, but it didn't last. See, over time, those who put things off, it caught up with them. And so there's, there's no study out there of any kind, nothing to suggest that procrastination in any way is healthy or good 
for us. And now when we're talking about this, let me make just one clarification. There's, there's a, a sense of chronic procrastination. There actually is a diagnosable psychological condition of those who chronically procrastinate. Now, I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about you. Telling you to just go do the thing that you're supposed to do is like telling someone who struggles with depression to just be happy. <laughs> That's not what we're getting at here. But we're talking about people who we just love to put the little things off. We kick the bucket down the road because why would you do today what you can do tomorrow? And I think one of the things we do is we apply the procrastination model to our spiritual lives. See, part of why I don't think that we have the fervor we do spiritually to get ourselves ready, as we're talking about readiness this morning, is because we feel like we have all the time in the world. See, last week we talked about the time between the Old and the New Testaments where we had these 400 years of silence and in our sermon study after, after worship, the group of us that got together, we were, we were talking about how the comparable length of time between that and what we are living in is pretty minuscule. See, we've been waiting for Jesus for like 2,000 plus years at this point. 400 pales in comparison. And so I think what happens is we get to a point where we don't sense the eminence of Christ's return. This idea of being ready for when Jesus comes back to take his bride to the church to be and live in glory. We, we think, I don't think any of us believes truly, if we're honest with ourselves, that that might happen in our lifetime. So you think, well, we lived somewhere in our 80s or 90s, and so if we're, I'm in my 30s, I've got decades before I need to worry about getting myself ready and prepared to be, to be with my Savior for that day to come. But that's not what Jesus says. He tells us to be at the ready. And so as we're in this season of Advent and we talked about the sense of preparation and how we might prepare last week, today I want to look at readiness and I want to look at it through the lens of Matthew 25. This is the best example of procrastination in all of Scripture. Um, and it's a little bit of a confusing passage. And so let's, let's read it together, Matthew 25, verses 1 through 13, and then we'll dig into kind of the meaning of this text. It's the parable of the ten virgins. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the groom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they did not take oil with them. But the wise ones took oil in their flasks with their lamps. When the groom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep. In the middle of the night, there was a shout, Here comes the groom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins got up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, Give us some of your oil, because our lamps are going out. And the wise ones answered, no, there won't be enough for us and for you. Go instead to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. When they had gone to buy some, the groom arrived, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. And later the rest of the virgins also came and said, Master, Master, open up for us. And he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore be alert because you don't know either the day or the hour. Now, there's a couple things in, in this passage to clear up. Um, 
The, the first is there's some cultural things about weddings that are significantly different from our time today. When we think of a wedding, we think of a, a single day event. Yes, we have an engagement, but the, the time between engagement and wedding day is really just spent preparing for decorations and food and music and DJs and all those things. In the time of Jesus, in, in Hebrew culture, a, a wedding was this long-standing affair that had a whole bunch of different parts to it. And so when a groom would, would come together with his bride, first off, the way that a groom and a bride would kind of come together was much more family-involved than we think today. See, we, we have these arranged marriages in certain parts of our culture today that are probably way more close to what we would have found in that time. And so this groom and this bride, their union has been worked out by two families for a long, long time. See, the first step is the betrothal. There's, there's a conversation where the two come together and the families to decide along with them that, yes, these are two people that ought to be together, that should be married. And then there's a, it's a betrothal. It's what we think of as engagement. And there's a process that happens throughout that time of betrothal. When we get to Mary and Joseph, as we get to the Christmas story a few weeks down the road, you will see that they are betrothed to one another. It's more serious than we think of as, I put a ring on it but they're not yet at the point of being married. After that, we have negotiations that take place. See, marriage in Hebrew culture was way more transactional than it is today. My father-in-law is still waiting for the promised goats that he has yet to receive, right? We, but in those times, that was very common. Like part of marriage, when you took on a bride, there was things that came as part of that. There was negotiations financially that took place. The third step, after all that is done, and this is the one that takes the most significant amount of time, is the groom, he will go and he will prepare a home for his bride. It's not like you get married and then you go look for that sweet house together and, or apartment together. No, they, he would go and he would set up the home for his bride-to-be. And the last step is that he would present that home to the bride. He would process in and they would have this wedding banquet and feast as they start their new lives together. And that is the point in this passage where we find ourselves. The groom is getting ready to process. It is this very big pomp and circumstance moment. In Hebrew culture, all these things are really important and significant. And so we have this processional that's taking place, and it's delayed. And we have these ten virgins, Scripture says. And the term is a little bit misleading. It's not like there just have to be 10 virgins, as we think of virgin today in modern culture. These were likely either one of two things. Either A, they were maidens of the bride. They were attendants to the bride. Maybe what we think of as bridesmaids, but not quite the same thing. Or, and this is more likely, they were servants of the groom's household. They were maid servants of the groom. Because they even say later in the passage at the very end, they come, the foolish ones, and they say, master, master. It would suggest that they are serving the groom's court and house. And so their role in this whole thing is that they are the ones who process the groom into the ceremony. And it's a huge responsibility. And so these women, these ten women, are tasked with getting ready, and they have these oil lamps that were a part of the whole thing, and they're supposed to be prepared. And so they show up, and five of them are ready, and five of them are not. And the process is so important that we later see the groom reacting with an unbelievable amount of anger and bitterness. 
See, it doesn't seem like in this passage the punishment fits the crime. I like to think if I had ten bridesmaids somehow in a part of my wedding, and praise the Lord, I didn't have ten groomsmen and bridesmaids. That would be crazy, right? But if I had ten and five of them forgot some lambs, I'm, I'm sure that the reaction wouldn't be that we lock them out of the reception at the end. And it weighs into the importance of the task. And so I want to look at just four things that we note and learn as we spend some time in this passage. Number one, the delay is unexpected and unusually long. See, this isn't a part of the process in the ceremonies where there normally would be a delay. The groom will come at an appointed time. He should have the house ready. Unless he's in there last minute staging the sofa just right, there's really no reason for a delay at this point. And and Scripture does not tell us why the groom is delayed. It just says he is. We'll dig into that a little bit later when we get into our sermon study, for those of you who will join us for that. But we don't exactly know. It's, it's not clear. We can only speculate. But the point is, he is late, and he is really, 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 really late. This isn't like, hey, I'm 20 minutes behind. He's super late. It tells us later the groom comes in the middle of the night. This is like a 3 a.m. type of deal, where he shows up, and he's finally ready to go. And so we have these maidens that are waiting an unbelievable amount of time. And it tells us something about the way that our waiting is supposed to go. See, I think we would be excused for not being ready if the wait was so long. If I said to Britta in our house, hey, we need to leave at 6 o'clock, and she says, okay, and 6.30 rolls around and she finally comes downstairs, I would say, all right, you're, we're going to be late, but it's okay. All right. But if she comes down at 10, 11, 2 in the morning. Like at this point, I'm probably asleep on the couch. And hopefully she wouldn't be mad at me for being asleep on the couch. Right? Now the reality is, Britta's really good about getting ready. If anybody in our house is going to make us late, it's probably going to be me. So I need to give her some credit. But, but the point here is, this passage makes it really clear that delay, that a length of waiting, is no excuse for a lack of readiness. The the ten virgins, they get no slack for the fact that the groom took forever to show up. Their task is to be prepared. Our task is to be at the ready when Christ comes again. Whether that takes two more days or another 2,000 years. There's no excuse in Scripture for, well, Jesus, you took too long. We got weary. We stopped getting ready. No. No. They don't get that benefit of the doubt. Number two, I want you to pay attention to the falling asleep of these ten virgins because it's interesting. When we look at the night going on and they start to doze off, it's not just the foolish virgins who doze off. It's also the wise ones. All ten of them have fallen asleep. And so it's important that we distinguish. The issue at hand here is not that when the groom came out, they were all sleeping. That's not the problem. The problem is when he came out and they woke up, five of them woke up ready to go, and five did not. What does this teach us? In our culture, there are things that we have to do in our everyday lives that are not necessarily what we would consider spiritual things. We engage in activities, we go on vacations, we go to work, and we do the mundane work of our everyday lives. And so those things are not bad things. It is okay that these ten women fell asleep. 
There's nothing wrong with that. See, our lives, as we wait and anticipate the second coming of our Lord and Savior, our lives have to go on. We will do things at various times that are not spiritual things. And so this is very important. If Christ returns next week, and when he comes back, you're in your living room watching your eighth episode of something on Netflix, he is not going to punish you for watching Netflix. Life goes on. Right? It's not like Jesus comes back and he doesn't find you on your knees in a sanctuary praying. You go, oh. No, it's, that, that's not what readiness is. Readiness is about having our hearts in the right place, about continuously seeking his will, about being a people that look for the things of the Lord, that look to grow in him and have an unholy satisfaction or a holy satisfaction when we are not at a place where we want to be. Whole, readiness is a people that, as we get to the end of a year, reflect and say, I am not anywhere further along in my journey of faith than I was on January 1st, and that bothers me, and something needs to happen. Right? A holy people that are ready are ones that don't just keep putting off spiritual growth as a procrastination. We have to be ready. And it's okay to be human, and it's okay to be doing things that don't have anything to do with church life. It's okay that if there's a Tuesday prayer meeting and you have a soccer game, that you go play that soccer game. There's nothing wrong with that. It's not about our every moment activities, but it's about the general preparedness of our hearts. Number three, the wise women in this story are not mean or petty. See, when they all wake up and they realize they have to get going and, and everybody has to light their lamps, the five wise women, they, tr- they trim their lamps and they get them ready to go. There, there'd be torches that would have rags that are soaked in oil and they would burn for anywhere from 20 to 30 minutes at a time, enough for the procession to take place. And so then the foolish ones say, hey, give us some of your oil. And it would make sense to share so that they all had functional lamps. But we need to understand that the wise women are trying to guard the process of the procession as a whole. They don't say no because they are petty and say, well, you weren't ready, why would I help you? No, they do it because they have to keep the ceremony going. If they share their oil, it'll run out before things are done and it'll make everything look bad. They're just making a wise, pragmatic decision. They're saying, listen, it's better to have five functional torches for the whole thing than it is to have them just go out halfway through. It's as if like our candles would just burn out halfway through a service. We don't want that. Picture being with a friend and having to go two cars 400 miles away and you have a full gas tank and your other friend is on E and he says, share your gas with me. What happens if you do? You're both stuck halfway there and you have nothing. That's what's happening here. They're being pragmatic. What do we learn? We cannot rely on the readiness of other people in our lives. When Christ comes or when you breathe your last, it will not matter what your parents' faith was. It will not matter what your children's or grandchildren's faith was like. It will not matter what your spouse's faith was. You are not going to be ready at the hand of a spouse or a loved one who who loves Jesus and has walked with him their whole lives. This is about your heart and your heart only. It doesn't matter what anyone else is doing. This is why I tell people, when it comes to your your view of yourself spiritually, when you look at where am I at in my walk with Christ, one of the worst things you can do is compare yourself to other people. It does not matter to your salvation what anyone else is doing with their lives. It doesn't. 
You should never compare yourself spiritually to someone else because that's a dangerous game, right? We can always find people who we look at and go, man, they are just in a place where I don't think I'll ever get to. But that's not what we're after. We're after incremental change. The Lord is in the business of shaping and changing your hearts. And so the only comparison you should ever make in a spiritual life journey to someone is to yourself at a prior time. Am I growing as opposed to where I was a year ago, a month ago? Ten years ago. Or when I reflect on the past decade or so of my life, have I just stood in one stagnant place? Have I really moved anywhere? Have I learned to trust him more? Have I started to desire the things that he calls me to more? Have I spent more time in the word than I did last year? Have I learned things of scripture? Have I learned to study things that I didn't know before? Have I served people around him for his kingdom more this year than I did last. Those are the things that we should ask. It is not about the other people around us. We can play that game all day. I can find you 10 people who are spiritually eons ahead of me, and I can find you 10 people who are below me that will make me feel real good about where I am in my faith. That's not helpful. So we shouldn't do that. And last, the groom's response, the master's response at the end of this Seems a little odd. He doesn't respond with, no, you were late, you can't come in. He says, I don't know you. And we have to understand what this means. Because it seems odd that the master wouldn't know his own servants. Right? Of course he knows them. This is not a literal thing of, I don't know who you are. Right? This is a really strong phrase of rebuke during this time. We know this because in Matthew 7, Jesus says the same thing. He says, depart from me, you evildoers. I never knew you. See, God knows everybody. He would know who they were. It's not a sense of, I don't know you. It's a, you are, you are not useful for the sake of what is happening here. Get away from this. You are not contributing. So depart. I don't, I don't know what your role in this would possibly be. You're not ready. Right? And so we see here the implication of this is that they are not unknown, but they are rejected. They are ejected away because of their lack of usefulness. They serve no purpose. They cannot help the ceremony to go on in the way that it should. And so the master rejects them to stay outside. They are the servants. They are not the guests. Their job is to help things. And if they can't help, then get out of the way for those who can. Now, before we get to the end of this, I need to look at one element because... I think in this passage, one of the things we lack is, is a view of God's grace in the middle of this. Because you would go, well, wait a minute. So if I'm not ready and, and the Lord rebukes me, will he just call me useless? What about faith? What about the fact that I've put my faith and trust in Christ, even though I'm a sinner? I mean, I'm not perfect. Is he going to reject me at the end of this because I'm not perfect and ready exactly in how he would want me to be? No. One of the important things we have to do in Scripture is we can't treat one passage in isolation. And so, yes... In the parable of the ten virgins, the point of the story is if you're not ready, it's not going to go well. But, but that's not the breadth of Scripture. Right? We don't get everything we need to know about the character of God in one parable in a set of 13 verses. The Lord is gracious and he is slow to anger. Your salvation does not depend on how spiritually up and at him you are by the time Jesus comes back. So I'm going to say, well, you only learned, you know, 13 of the 66 books of Scripture by heart. So I was hoping for 20. You can't. No. It's not a matter of counting 
The Lord has grace that he bestows upon us. The only thing for your salvation that matters is whether you have your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are his, you are secure. But this passage does tell us that with that security, with that faith, comes a response. And if our response is that we just sit idly by instead of readying ourselves, then we're going to be stuck at the end. I would question where your faith truly lies if it doesn't actually shape the way you think and move and the decisions you make and the way you spend your time, talent, and treasure. Right? A true, genuine faith in the Lord who saved us has to spur on some level of action. And if it doesn't, I would ask yourself, where is my faith really at? But know that there is grace outside of this passage. So what? How do we fight this idleness in our lives? The secular world actually has a lot of help here. When we look up, you can do Google searches for how do I fight procrastination, and there's all kinds of different things. Uh, and there's three things that, that I found that actually are really helpful to our own spiritual lives. And they are this. The first thing that we do when we are supposed to fight procrastination is what we call eat the elephant. Right? How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. We, when it comes to our growth in Christ, I think one of the things we do is we become intimidated by our lack of understanding. We look at scripture and we go, I, you know, I tried reading that, reading that book once and I just didn't get anything. I just don't know what it's all about. It's confusing and you know, maybe you picked up an old King James version and you read it and you couldn't understand half the words. And so we, we stop in our growth because we are intimidated with the whole big picture of it. I, I did this in seminary. I started my, my time in seminary and I sat under these professors who, who knew things that I could only ever dream of understanding a fraction of. And so there's a sense of like, should I even bother with this? Like, I'm never going to get to that point. What I didn't understand is that they at one point sat in my exact shoes and it took them 20, 30 years to get to that point. And the way they did it is by learning something, and then learning something else, and learning something else, and putting that learning into practice, and gaining wisdom from it, and growing over the years, and time and time again. The way that you will grow in your faith is a little at a time. Do not become frustrated because it's not happening super fast. One chunk at a time. This week, I will spend five minutes a day in God's word. Five minutes. I'm not asking you to read six chapters a day. Just five minutes. Set a timer. Five minutes. Five minutes in the word and then one minute in prayer. Next month I'll make it six or eight or ten. This year, for 2021, as we get into the new year, I want to I talk to one person about the gospel. I want to get to the point where there's one person, just one, that I share the gospel with. And it might take me till November to get to the point with them that I'm going to do that. But I'm going to be intentional in my conversations with that one person. And then next year, I'll make it two. <laughs> See, we will grow if we take small steps. And believe it or not, as the years go by, you'll have found that you've eaten that elephant. You've continued to grow in your faith more and more. The second thing we do when we're procrastinators is what I just talked about at the very beginning. We remove the distractions. When I have to do something creative or, or a task that's going to take me a long time, like writing a sermon, I do actually spend time clearing my desk. 
I don't want anything on that desk that's going to distract me. I turn off music I don't like. I have a whole playlist that's just, just music with no words. It's just like beats that are like study beats. So there's no words that distract me because if I put on worship music, the next thing I know is I'm singing to it and I'm not thinking about. Right? We, we have to remove the things in our lives that distract us from getting ready. We do. There's so many things. Some of them vigilantly. I was joking about Netflix earlier. Some of you need to cancel your Netflix account. You do. If you, can, if you can kill seasons of stuff in one week, you need to get rid of Netflix. I'm sorry. That might sting, right? Some of you need to get rid of some things in your lives that are good things. Some of you are involved in so much stuff, good stuff, things that the Lord would, would love and bless, but you're involved in so many of them that you have no time to think about spiritual things. Maybe you've thought to yourself, if you this year have wanted to attend some kind of a Bible study, book study, small group, but you've said, you know, I just don't have the time. Why not? What are the things that are robbing you of 24 hours, seven days a week, that you don't have the ability to give one hour? Now, I'm not saying you should feel guilty if you're not joining one of our particular small groups. I don't care what you join. I don't care if you find something on your own. But if you can't find an hour a week to study the Lord's word, or to read things of spiritual realities, to, to dig into books that are helpful to our, to our walk with Christ. If you can't find the hour, you're too busy. There are distractions in your life, and you need to pick some of those and get rid of them. You've got to clear your desk to be able to focus on the thing at hand. And this has to be sometimes really painful and vigilant. Some of us need to do a really hard inventory of our lives and how we spend our time to say, you know what, no. This stuff has to go. It's good stuff, but I just, I have this many hours. Our elders, over the last few years, have read this book called Simple Church. And it's a, it's a way of doing church. And one of the things that it talks about is that we, we, we laser focus in what we accomplish as a church. There's a billion things a church could do that are good things. But a church of our size can't do a billion things with any kind of quality. So we ought to focus on doing just a few things with immense excellence. What are the things that we are called to do in this community and in this place? Your lives should work the same way. What are the most important things? And then you allocate your time to those. You remove the distractions. Maybe you can't read the Bible in a room with other people. Maybe you have to go up to your room. Maybe there's a TV up there that you have to get rid of. Maybe your computer is in the wrong room of your house and Facebook's just calling your name. Maybe your cell phone belongs in the basement when you're in your bedroom reading God's word so that the text messages can't even be heard. Whatever it is, we have to be vigilant about removing those distractions from our lives. To stop procrastinating this task of getting ready for the Lord. And the final thing is, start with something you enjoy. You have a big task. Usually it has a bunch of manageable parts. And there's some of those things you like more than other things. Right? When, I, when I, for instance, write a sermon, um, the first thing I like to think about is actually the, the end of my sermon. I don't know why, I just enjoy the end of a sermon. Not because I'm glad to be done, but just, like, my mind just wants to go there. And so I usually start with that. And it always ends up changing as I actually get into the text and study it, because it should. God's word should shape the word that I preach. But I like to start there, and it helps because I'm starting with something I really enjoy. Right? Or I'll read a, a book that has something to do with the passage that I'm studying just for fun while I'm eating some cookies and, and having some coffee. And it's just a way to get into the process without diving into the parts that I'm really not looking forward to, like digging into Greek and Hebrew word studies. That's usually the last thing I do, sadly. 
Right? When it comes to our spiritual growth, what are the things about the Lord's kingdom and serving him and walking with him that get you excited? What is it that gets you going? Maybe you are not a reader. Maybe that intimidates you. And so you go find a study somewhere where you're not doing a whole lot of reading. Plug for about half an hour or an hour from now. When we get together to do our study, there's no reading you have to do to come. Just be there. Maybe you are one who primarily needs to spend this year focused on serving other people. Maybe you have a servant heart. There are a million ways in which we can get into growing spiritually in our hearts and lives for Christ. Start with the things that excite you. And you'll find that the Lord will work with those things. And he will slowly draw your heart closer to be like his. And those things that you aren't excited about, the ways in which he calls you to live, maybe it's giving. Maybe that's something you're not excited about. Trust me, as you grow in your heart for Jesus, he will start to plant those desires in your heart. The things that you aren't excited about doing, he will start to move you in that direction. There are elements of church life. I remember sitting as someone who didn't really know Jesus in in youth group because I had friends listening to worship songs thinking they were so dumb. Now one of the greatest joys is to be able to stand and lead others in worship. See, I enjoy that now when I never did back then. Start with the manageable things. If we do those three things, if we start with one bite at a time, we we, we move into some things we enjoy and we remove distractions and we just get going, you will find that little by little, the Lord will transform your heart. In this Advent season, my prayer is that you would set aside the procrastination, that we would live lives that truly believe that the Lord could come back before this service is over, right? We would live lives of anticipation that would think, maybe I don't have to go to small group after this service because the Lord will have come back and we'll all be in small group together. I wouldn't have to teach it. I mean, our, our prayer is that you, this Advent season, would take serious the task of removing the things that cause you to procrastinate, that you would stand at the ready, and that you would see how the Lord uses that time. Let's pray. Father, we stand in awe of you. As we come to your throne this morning and as we get to worship together with God's people through all of our homes, we ask that you would mold us. We ask that you would use this Advent season to, in in us, renew a sense of urgency that we would all be full of homes that anticipate Jesus, not just the birth of our Savior, but his second coming. And Father, as we look at this year, we ought to pray with even more fervor to say, yes, as John says in Revelation, come, Lord Jesus, and come soon. Because we're weary, and we're tired. And in some ways, we feel like we're losing hope. And so speak into our hearts and minds. Give us a renewed sense of desire for you. Give us a renewed sense of excitement for that day when you will come and you will wipe away every tear from every eye. We all pray together, come Lord Jesus. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.